Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to this aspect of our service together as we, uh, we continue to dig into the Word of God together. Hey, today I wanted to extend an invitation, or I should say a, uh, a special welcome uh, to any of you that are with us that maybe this is the first time that you've tuned in. Uh, perhaps something about the title of today's sermon, or we seeing signs of the end of time. Maybe something about that uh, sermon title uh, just drew you in, and so you wanted to watch, you wanted to consider. Um, we're glad you're here. Here at Calvary, uh, as well as the, the Christian church, we believe that God's Word speaks into every single scenario and circumstance that we face in life, including uh, the troubling times in which we find ourselves. The Bible says a few things. It says, for the word of God is living and active. That means that even though it was written 2,000 years ago in some cases, 3,000 years ago in some cases, it's still alive and still applicable unto the lives that we live today. The Apostle Paul, he declared that the word of God is useful for teaching us, for correcting us, for training us in righteousness. It's useful, it's valuable. And so we look into his pages, and you'll notice how Paul continues that quote. In the end, he says, so that the man of God, the servant of God, the woman of God, so that the child of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so that's why we continue to dig into it, and that's why we dig into it every time we come together, whether it be a Sunday morning or sometime during the week, as we gather now in one of our Zoom rooms together, we believe the Word of God can speak into our lives. And so we look expectantly into God's Word this morning as we continue our study in the book of Mark. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13, Mark chapter 13. While you're turning there, I'll remind you that we are in the final year of the life, or excuse me, final week of the life of Jesus Christ. We've been watching ever since we got down to Mark chapter 11, uh, as Jesus triumphantly entered into the city of Jerusalem. That took place on the Sunday of the last week of his life. And he comes into Jerusalem, he rides on the donkey, we commonly call it Palm Sunday. We did that three, four weeks ago together. Jesus then went from there to the temple where he assessed uh, the, the status of things in the city of Jerusalem and in the religion of, of uh, Judaism. From there, he returned home. The next day, he comes back on Monday uh, and he cleans out the temple. He overturns the tables of the money changers. He chases out the merchants and the merchandising that was taking place there. And then he went home to his, the place he was staying that evening. He then comes back on Tuesday, and Tuesday is a day in which Jesus is essentially grilled by a number of different people with a number of different questions. And they begin to ask Jesus things like, where did you get this authority? They begin to ask Jesus these questions that are they're meant to be gotcha questions, div divisive issues that are going to alienate Jesus from some of his listeners based on the answer that he gives. And we, we were looking at that. I think it was three weeks ago now we considered those things. And so we have been looking at Tuesday of Holy Week now together as a church for about three weeks. And today's study continues to happen on that day. I, I imagine it's late in the afternoon on that day as the disciples are heading home uh, for the evening. Uh, and in this particular instance now, the disciples are going to first comment on some things about the temple, which is going to cause Jesus to respond and then Jesus is going to give them a teaching about 
some very important events, the end of days, the end times, the last days, all those terms that no doubt you've heard before. Today's passage of study that we're going to consider is commonly referred to the Olivet Discourse of Jesus Christ because of the location. Jesus is teaching on the Mount of Olives. We call it the Olivet Discourse. We find it here in Mark chapter 13. We read about it in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And we also read about it in Luke chapter 21. It's some of the more well-known passages of Scripture, or at least the, mel- the most uh, well-known or well-heard-of passages, kind of like a Sermon on the Mount. People may, that may not be that familiar with it have perhaps heard of the Olivet Discourse. And so today we're going to dig into that. We're going to consider that. We're going to see what the Lord has for us uh, in that. Now, if I had to guess, I would sus- suspect that one of the reasons why the Olivet Discourse is so well-known, so popular, if you will, is because the way in which it focuses on end-time events. Because people both inside of the church and outside of the church are so interested in knowing when will the end of the world be, what will the end of the world look like. I mean, think about Hollywood and how often Hollywood puts out these movies about the end of the world and how it's saved by Keanu Reeves or whoever it's going to be. It's just... It's something that we're drawn to. We want to understand the unknown of it is something that we want to know. And in light of the unprecedented times in which we find ourselves as a result of this coronavirus, there's been a resurgence in people's desire to know, are we entering into the end times? People have begun asking. People have begun wondering, are we living in the last days? And is the end of the world upon us? And so I think our study today of Mark chapter 13 is certainly timely indeed for us. The Olivet Discourse, it's been called the Little Apocalypse uh, in contrast to the Big Apocalypse, which would be the book of Revelation. The word apocalypse, it means the unveiling or revelation. And so uh, the Olivet Discourse has been called the Little Apocalypse, while the book of Revelation would be the big one. And so while here in the Olivet Discourse, we're giving a brief glimpse of events that are associated with the end of the age, a more detailed understanding of these events, to have that, it would be helpful to study the book of Revelation, or maybe the book of Daniel, or perhaps uh, the letters 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, where much more detail is given to us in those passages about the end of days. That being said, Jesus here opens up his disciples' understanding to some of the details of the end of days. And so study then of this discourse is important, not just because of the insights that we get into the end of days, we could read other books for that, but it's important for us to take notice of the way in which Jesus used the conversation about those end of days events, the way in which he used them to warn his disciples how they should respond to those events. And so as a Christian seeking to follow Christ in the midst of the events in which we face, how do these these warnings apply to us? What would Jesus say to us? How should we respond to the global pandemic in which we find ourselves? And Jesus now, he's in this passage, we'll look at it in depth. I'll give you a cert, like an overview. He's going to list four dangers that they should be on their guard, they should be aware of, they should be looking out for, not being alarmed by those things 
necessarily, and they are this. Number one is a reliance upon outward religious accoutrements, if you will. Those, the, the grand buildings, the, the things that we wear and put on, the rituals that we practice. To be on our guard against those things because as wonderful as those things may be, they in and of themselves aren't the life of our faith, number one. The second one is to be on our guard against the deception of false religions and false messiahs. We're going to look at that in verses 5 through 6. Thirdly, the danger of uneasiness and distraction which uh, world turmoil can cause within us. And so when we hear of wars and rumors of wars, or famines and earthquakes and pestilences and the events that we find ourselves in right now, not allowing those things to get us off course in our walk with God. And then finally, the last danger that Jesus points to, we'll look at it starting in verse 9, and it's this idea of being tripped up by persecution. Jesus tells these disciples that they will experience persecution in their lives, and he, and he warns them essentially not to allow that to get them off track. And so with that, let's open up uh, by reading the first few verses of this discourse. This is Mark chapter 13. Hopefully by now you found it in your Bibles. Let me read the opening two verses. It says this, Now as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another, that will not be thrown down. Now, ever since Jesus got into Jerusalem on that Sunday, he had been in and out of the temple. Almost all of the events that we have considered uh, this last bunch of weeks together have been in and around that temple area. So we've been talking about the temple. We've been talking about the compound that surrounds the temple, what we call the Temple Mount area. Um, you, you remember the temple was one of the most, if not the most, magnificent structures of the ancient world. The temple, which was originally constructed by King Solomon about 900 or so years before Jesus, was destroyed during the captivities and then rebuilt, as we've studied here together on Sunday mornings, by both Zerubbabel and Ezra. We read about that in those books, or in that book. And that's following the time of the captivity, which we'll just put around 500 years before Christ. Well, that temple was greatly uh, enhanced and enlarged during the reign of Herod the Great. The same Herod that put all the babies to death at the birth of Christ. He came to power about 20 years before Jesus. And one of his grand uh, plans was to enlarge and enhance the Temple Mount area so that it would indeed be the wonder of the ancient world. And it's as a result of that expansion process that the Temple Mount complex in and of itself was created. It had previously just been a, a temple building on top of a mountain. And he leveled that area off. He flattened that area. He put in a whole number of buildings around it, which we know to be the porticos and, and things like that. And he improved it to such a way that it became a wonder of the ancient world. I read one commentator, and he said this. He declared that in today's monetary terms, the project of Herod's temple would have been valued at over $1 trillion by today's standards. And so that makes the temple and the Temple Mount area one of, if not the, greatest single building project ever constructed. 
And certainly to put it in the context of that day and age with their limited uh, technology and, and uh, trucks and all those kinds of things that could do that type of work, it's really remarkable to consider what was done. And so it's as the disciples now are departing the temple area, they take notice of all of these things. They take notice of the glories of this facility. And the notice of it causes one of them to explain, teacher, verse 1, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, this is despite the fact that the disciples had been in and out of the temple a number of different times with Jesus. On this trip, other times they went down to Jerusalem with Jesus, and no doubt as they grew up with their parents as good Jewish kids, going down into Jerusalem. They've been here in the temple area before, but there's some, for some reason now they decide to comment on the wonderful stones and on the wonderful buildings. Luke also adds, Luke chapter 21, how they commented on the way in which the stones were adorned as well. So everything about this has drawn their attention and they comment on it to Jesus. Now we know today there are no remnants of the temple that exist today. Uh, the foundation, those kinds of things. The building was destroyed, but you go all throughout Israel and you can find foundations that were underground uh, of where buildings used to be. And in some cases, they build buildings on top of those uh, antiquated uh, foundations. But as far as the temple is concerned, there is no evidence today of the foundation of where the temple was. And so historians, archaeologists, all those folks, they have trouble even determining exactly where the temple is located on the Temple Mount. Most people assume that the location of the, the Islamic Dome of the Rock must be where the temple stood, but it, it doesn't necessarily have to. Matter of fact, I think a very good argument can be made that it's going to be a few hundred feet north of that um, or to the right side of that as you enter in through the Eastern Gate. What we do have existing of the temple is what is called the Western Wall, or it's also known as the Wailing Wall. And if you ever recall pictures of Jerusalem, uh, you will see uh, the Jewish men, uh, primarily sometimes a, there is another section for the Jewish ladies, but the Jewish men, they'll come in their garb and they'll go up to the edge of this wall. It looks like it's about 50, 60 feet high. They'll shove their little papers into the cracks of the wall. That's not the Western Wall of the temple. It's the western wall of the Temple Mount. It's the western wall of the retaining wall that kept all that dirt in place to flatten that mountain so that it could become a Temple Mount area. That's the complex. Now, I bring it up here because even in that retaining wall, in the retaining wall, not the temple, but even in the retaining wall, some of the stones that we find there are 50 feet wide, 25 feet high, and have a depth of anywhere to about 15 feet. That's a huge stone. It's been compared to the size of a school bus in, in length here, a huge stone that was brought into place. And how they were able to transport those stones at that time was an engineering feat. Uh, it would be even today to transport stones like that, even with all the technology that we have. And so imagine what some of the stones of the temple itself must have looked like and how they must have appeared. It was a wonder of the world. They comment on that to Jesus. Now, as we read, we see that Jesus' response was something no doubt unexpected to them. I imagine they expected Jesus would have said, yes, this is amazing. Isn't God greater or something 
but instead, Jesus says this. He says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's a heavy response. It, it's almost like, all right, happy feelings gone. You know, this fellow wanted to have a nice little conversation about some nice things. And Jesus sort of, he kind of calls him out on it. He says, you see this, uh, this great building? Not one stone will be left upon another. And again, I, I feel like it's a heavy response on the part of the Lord. But in light of the discourse that we're going to dig into, where Jesus begins to dig into the end time events of the world, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, hey, why be so enamored by things that will shortly pass away? It's not going to be here at the end of time. Focus on things that really matter. And again, in light of the fact that disciples have been to Jerusalem, to the temple area again and again and again, you have to wonder why they even bring these things up. And in light of all that's been going on this last week, with this triumphal entry and the priest coming against them and, and all these things that have been happening here, Jesus repeatedly uh, in the weeks leading up to this talking about the fact that he would go and suffer and die, all these things, it's odd that they bring it up here. And so Jesus responds here, he says, look, you see these magnificent and these wonderful and these ornate stones, not one of them will be left standing upon another. And that statement must have shocked the disciples. And in fact, we see it was enough to for cause them to ask Jesus uh, about it when they finally get to that next place they're going to sit down and settle down in. And so we learn in our passage that they're going out of the temple. They're going to go down uh, into what is called the Kidron Valley, uh, right there alongside of the Temple Mount area. And then they're going to begin to make their way up the mount, which is called mount, uh, the Mount of Olives. It's where the Garden of Gethsemane is and other things. And so there, they, they make their way to the top of this hill, this mountain. They sit down there. And it's there that the disciples are going to say to Jesus, tell us when these things will be. When will these things be? Now, the things that they're specifically referencing has to do with the dismantling of the temple. But they're really asking about something more than just when will the temple be without any stones, because in their mind, they associate such an event with the end of the world. And so what they're asking about really is, when will the end of the world be? When will it be so bad, so destructive, that the stones of this temple itself, not even one will be upon the other? We don't have it here in Mark, but Matthew's account points out that they indeed do link the events together, the destruction of this temple and then the end of times. And so Matthew tells us this. He says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples come to him privately and they say, tell us, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so the disciples will actually ask Jesus three rapid-fire questions. Two of them we have in the book of Mark, the third one where he but a glean here from the book of Matthew. But they're going to ask, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? <clears throat> Jesus, you'll note, he'll actually answer questions two and three. But he never really does give a specific answer to the first question about when will the temple be destroyed. 
And so again, since they're associating the destruction of the temple with the end of the world, that's what Jesus begins to focus his answer on. When will these things be? Now, if you go back and you look in the history of the Jewish people, we know, we can read about it, it's written everywhere, we can read about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and when that occurred. It actually occurred in 70 AD, just about 40 years after Jesus said these words, is when that city and that temple in particular were destroyed. And it has never been rebuilt since then, 1950 years later. Jesus speaks these words roughly around the year 30. Within 40 years, the temple is destroyed. And likely, quite a few of the people that heard him say these words, or perhaps heard these four men that heard him say these words, were still alive at the time of the destruction of the temple. Jesus prophesied. About 40 years after uh, these events, 70 AD, there was a widespread Jewish revolution. The, the Jews, zealots, and others had had enough of Roman rule and decided they were going to take their chances and seek to overthrow the Roman government. Initially, they had a little bit of success. But as the Romans regrouped and sent more troops to the area, eventually that rebellion, that revolt was crushed. That was under the leadership of General Titus Vespasian. He would go on to be the emperor uh, as well. And under his leadership, they would not only destroy the city of Jerusalem, but they would destroy, they would torch the temple itself. And the fire that formed in that temple was so intense that the gold covering of the temple began to melt. And that gold began to drip down into the crevices between those glorious stones that made up that temple. And so in order to get at that gold, the Roman soldiers were ordered that they were to dismantle, to dismantle those rocks one by one, those stones one by one, so that they could get every last bit of gold that had previously covered the temple. And just like that, the temple was destroyed, and not one stone was left upon another. Again, the destruction was so complete that today, researchers still have difficulty determining exactly where up on the Temple Mount area the temple stood. And so truly indeed, not one stone was left upon another. Jesus's words were literally fulfilled. And that's important for you to take note because Jesus's prophecy about the destruction of that temple and its literal fulfillment, it establishes us for us a pattern of interpretation for the rest of the prophecies in this chapter, and how we should go about interpreting the rest of the prophecies in this chapter. Jesus's prediction regarding the Temple Mount was fulfilled exactly as he said it would be fulfilled. And so too then, we should expect that the other events Jesus makes mention of in this chapter will also be literally fulfilled as well. Now, as we dig into Jesus's end time discourse, we come across a difficulty that we have in our study of Bible prophecy that we see so often in our study of Old Testament prophecies. And that is that some of the prophecies will see their fulfillment in what we'll call the near future. And then some of the prophecies in the very next sentence are not going to be fulfilled until the far future. And so we often find in prophecy what has been called a foreshortening of history in which the perspective of time is either vague 
or perhaps even lacking, a foreshortening of history. It's kind of like when you stand, if you've ever had this opportunity, you're standing and you're looking out at a group of mountain peaks that are off in the distance, and those peaks appear to be right on top of one another, while in reality, you come to discover that they're separated by miles of valleys that are in between them. And so in one breath, Jesus will be speaking of events that will occur in these disciples' own lifetime, and then in the next breath, we'll be discussing events that are yet future to you and I these many years later. And we'll try today to, and the next few weeks, to draw some distinctions as best we can between those different time periods. And so allow me to read. I'm going to read uh, through the entirety of this opening section, starting in verse 3, right after I get a drink of water. If you have water, help yourself. All right, verse 3. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, verse 9, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness to them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures unto the end will be saved." Now, some of the prophecies that we have here are, again, what I called earlier, near prophecies. And it begins with the prophecy that Jesus uttered about the destruction of, the, of Jerusalem and of the temple in 70 AD. The rest of the prophecies, which I have called far prophecies, they obviously go beyond 70 AD because they ultimately culminate with the personal and physical return of Jesus Christ in power and in glory, as Mark says down in verse 26. And so then again, what we have in this discourse is what is sometimes called a foreshortening of history, in which Jesus moves from events not too far from his day to events that I believe are not too far from our day. And there are three sections in this discourse, and they're going to form sort of the outline of our next three weeks of study. The first section uh, are events that deal with the beginning of the tribulation, including events that lead up to the tribulation, and that's found in verses 5 to 13. The second section, which is verses 14 through 18, deal with one particular event right in the middle of the tribulation. And then the final section, verses 19 to 27, it deals with the final years of the tribulation and then ultimately the return of Jesus Christ. 
Now, before we go any further, let me first define a word that I've used now three or four times, and that's the word tribulation. Now, you've no doubt, you've heard the term, you have a general idea of the meaning as far as the, the dictionary is concerned, but tribulation is the cause of or the state of great trouble and suffering. And now, in addition to the dictionary's meaning of the term, and because of that meaning, the Bible uses the term to describe an actual period of time that will be marked by unprecedented trouble and suffering in our world. In fact, that word trouble is used in another place to describe the whole period where it is called the time of Jacob's trouble. And so this period of time, this time of Jacob's trouble, what is commonly called the tribulation, with a capital T, is what we're going to be discussing this week and, and into the next one. And Jesus is addressing those events uh, in this chapter, in this discourse. They are developed in greater detail in Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 19. They're mentioned in places like the book of Daniel and in 1 Thessalonians and in other places. And we learn a lot about the tribulation in the Bible as we piece all these pieces together. In the book of Daniel, we learn the length of the tribulation, where it tells us that it will be a seven-year period of time. Daniel, the book, it uses the word week. Now, you need to know, much like in America here in parts of English-speaking world, we use the word decade, and we all know that it's referring to 10 years. Well, the word uh, week for the Jews, it referred to, it could seven days, but it referred to a period of seven years as well. And that's how Daniel uses it. And so Daniel tells us in verse 27 of his ninth chapter, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. So a seven-year period of time. We also learn in the book of Daniel, in that same set of verses there, that halfway through that seven-year period of time, that this Antichrist figure will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, a phrase we're going to be looking at uh, in our study today. And so you have a seven-year period of time, but halfway through that seven-year period of time, you have a particular event, an abominable event, which causes desolation, also known as the abomination of desolation. And we learn that that period of time, from that middle point to the end of those seven years, is actually a plunging even deeper into a time of trouble and trial and suffering in the world. And thus, that portion of the tribulation has become known as the Great Tribulation. And again, you can read more detailed understanding of those things uh, as you dig into the, books, the book of Revelation. Chapter 6 through chapter 19 reveals the events of the Great Tribulation. And so with that sort of background now of what's the tribulation, what's the halfway mark, what's the great tribulation, and so on, we jump now into the first section of the Olivet Discourse. And again, it's found in verses 5 to 13, where Jesus issues four warnings to the people of God that they need to be aware of. Now, I'm using today the phrase, the people of God. It's, it's actually not a phrase I tend to use very often. I'll usually talk about the church. I'll talk about uh, believers uh, and things like that. But I don't typically use the phrase, the people of God. But today I've done so by design. Because what we see in the scriptures as we study through the entire word of God from the Old Testament to the New Testament, 
we see that that phrase is applied to different groups of people depending upon the dispensation in which the phrase is being used. And so in the Old Testament, the people that were called the people of God, that was a reference to the Old Testament Jewish people. They were the people of God. In uh, the New Testament times and up until our particular day, that same phrase is used to describe the church. And so the church are the people of God. And then you have other instances where the phrase would be a description of those that begin to follow Jesus during the dark days of the tribulation. And there was a popular book series a while ago that used the phrase, and it's a good one to describe them. These would be so-called tribulation saints. And so throughout the Bible, you have the Old Testament Jews called the people of God, the church called the people of God, and the tribulation saints called the people of God. And so I use the phrase today, the people of God, because certain aspects of the verses that we are looking at apply to those who come to believe in Jesus Christ during the tribulation, the tribulation saints, while other portions apply not only to those saints, but also to the church age saints, Christians, believers like you and myself. And so as I said, Jesus is going to warn then the people of God four things. Verse 6, he warns them about false messiahs. Verse 7 and 8, about wars and rumors of wars. The second half of verse 8, natural disasters. And then finally, beginning in verse 9, about persecution. Now, does that sound familiar to the day and age in which we live? False messiahs, false religions, natural disasters, persecutions. It sure does. It does not, however, indicate that we are in the tribulation period. Because I want you to notice what Jesus says in verse 7. In verse 7, he says this, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Look at the latter half of verse 8, where he says that these are but the beginning of birth pains. And so Jesus lays out in verses 5 to 13 the course of the church age and even the three or more years following the rapture of his church, which will mark the start of the tribulation period. And he says those days will be a period of deception. That's the false messiahs, of strife, which has to do with the wars and the rumors of wars. He says it's going to be a period marked by the effects of our fallen world. And so you have earthquakes and you have famines and you have pestilences. And then finally says it'll be marked by hostility toward God and hostility toward the people of God or persecution. But all of these things are not the end. But as he says, they are the beginning of the end. They are but the beginning of birth pains, which any biological mother could tell you they come upon a woman with increased frequency and with greater and greater intensity as the delivery draws near. Jesus says, like birth pains, these false messiahs, these wars, these natural disaster, disasters, the persecutions uh, against God's people, they're going to increase in frequency and intensity as the tribulation period draws nearer and nearer and nearer. Does that not resonate with the history of the 20th century and even more the opening decades of the 21st? Jesus begins by warning of false messiahs. 
Notice he says, they're going to come in his name, Messiah, anointed one. They're going to be anointed ones that will pretend either to be Jesus, to either be the one, or representatives of Jesus, so that as he says there, they might lead many astray. History shows us that within 100 years of the death of Christ, uh, his departure from the earth here, after within 100 years of his death and resurrection, over 60 different people came on the scene claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be Jesus returning. And that deception, certainly, it continues to our present day. And that's with sort of the, the lone kook that's out there claiming to be the Messiah and established religious movements like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormon Church or the religion of Islam or what might have you. Jesus said these things would be, and they would increase in intensity. Jesus says, you will see, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars and nation rising against nation. Has there ever been a time in your lifetime, those of us that are watching today, has there ever been a time in your lifetime where there wasn't active fighting or circumstances which would lead up to an active fight somewhere in the world or more likely many different places in the world? And Jesus informs his disciple that these things would be so. And so often in troubled times, when that is the case, when there's troubling times like that, much like the troubling times we're facing today, people begin to wonder, is the end of the age near? Jesus is telling us that this is not, uh, the sign is not that there are wars and rumors of wars. The sign is that along with these other indicators, there's an increasing in frequency of these things, an intensity of these things, just as birth pains do. Jesus' third warning, he says there will be earthquakes in various places, as well as famines. Earthquakes as well as famines. Luke, chapter 21, 11, same storyline here, adds the word pestilences and great signs from the heavens. Now, a pestilence is defined as a fatal epidemic disease. Well, that's certainly interesting in light of the days in which we are living. Regarding earthquakes, there have been over 4,000 earthquakes worldwide in just the first four months of 2020. And we're on pace to once again see over 12,000 earthquakes in this year alone, as we have each year in the last decade. The United States of the U.S. states of Utah and Idaho experienced their strongest earthquakes this year, it was last month, than they have respectively in the last 30 years and 40 years. Now, whether that is because the earth itself is great on greater edge as the coming of the Lord draws near, or it's because of the greater technology that is now at our disposal to track these types of things, one way or the, uh, or the other, we are seeing and hearing about a rapid increase in earthquakes the world over, as the coronavirus pestilence. A hundred years ago, the Spanish flu, it had no impact on the United States until hundreds of thousands of American soldiers returned home from World War I, and suddenly a global pandemic ensued. If it weren't for global travel and trade, would we in the United States even know about this virus that hit some city in China that most of us had never even heard of prior to this? My point is this, whether these things are actually increasing in prevalence or because of how small the world actually has become, we are seeing 
and we are hearing, and now we are experiencing these things more and more and more. Like birth pains, the frequency and the intensity of these occurrences is increasing, just as Jesus said they would. Jesus warns of a final danger that can be expected as the world hurdles toward the return of Jesus Christ, and that is the persecution of his people. And so notice what he says in verse 9. He says, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in their synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Skip down to 12. He says, and brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, the children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures unto the end will be saved. The Lord predicts that there will be a great personal testing for those who would be unflinching in their testimony for him. 65% of those martyred over the history of the Christian faith, 65% of those martyred for the faith were killed for their faith between the years 1901 and 2000. And that pace has not slowed down in the 21st century. According to Open Doors Ministry, we learned 260 million Christians, that's one out of every eight Christians, presently lives in a place in the world where they experience high levels of persecution. And again, according to that same ministry, in the 50 nations that are on their persecution watch list, 11 Christians per day are killed as a result of their decision to follow Jesus Christ. And so once more, like birth pains, the intense hatred of the gospel is increasing in intensity and in frequency in our lifetimes. But again, you'll see Jesus says the end is not yet. These are but the beginning of birth pains. And so then, how is the Christian to respond to these things? How does the church respond to the rapid spread of false religions? of wars and rumors of wars, of earthquakes and pestilences and famines and persecutions, especially when those things are coming more frequently and with greater intensity year after year after year. How does the follower of Christ respond to these things, which cause great fear and panic and despair to the unbeliever all around the world? Well, this is what Jesus told his disciples. This is what Jesus tells you and I today. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. A little later in that same passage, he says, you heard me say to you, I am going away, I will come to you, verse 28. And then he says, and I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again. And I've told you beforehand of these things so that when they occur, you may believe. Now that phrase, you may believe, is, a, is an important one because the idea that's being communicated in the original is this. It's that you may continue to believe. Or to say it a different way, that you will not lose belief. And so are the events that we're facing in our world, are they troubling? Sure they are. Hundreds of thousands of people have died from this virus. Tens of thousands within a one hour drive of likely where you're sitting right now watching this video. No one can say for sure 
how impacted our economy has become because of this. Our national government has spent trillions and trillions of dollars to, to stimulate or prop up our economy, further deepening our nation's incredible amount of national debt. You can be certain that the enemy nations, the enemy nations, enemies of America and rogue organizations are taking notice of the impact that a little bug or a small virus can have on our nation and the world, and that they're beginning to make plans to replicate that in a lab somewhere so that they can use it against us as a weapon of war. Of course, the events that we're seeing are troubling. And these ideas that I'm sharing here, just some of them, are thoughts, they cause troubling thoughts within us. But what they do not need to do is cause us to be paralyzed by fear. As a believer, we need not be paralyzed by fear. I want you to take notice of an interesting word that Luke includes. And again, I think it's so very important as we're studying this uh, discourse here in Mark chapter 13 is to flip back and look through Matthew chapter 24 and 5 and Luke chapter 21 because there's just little words, little insights, little vantage points that Mark or Luke or Matthew pick up that the other one didn't. And here we have that again. Luke indicates in his account of the passage a very interesting little word is included. And in the context of persecution that we read about already in Mark's account, Luke adds this here. He says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. So Luke describes those trials before the various councils, the persecutions where some are even dying. He describes them as an opportunity to bear witness. And so in our day, when the world is freaking out, as a follower of Christ, you can continue to have peace and a heart that, not, that is not troubled. And that is your opportunity to be a witness. When the world, because of its fear, begins to hoard everything from food products to toilet paper, that will be your opportunity to be a witness. When the world, because of the unknown of eternity, dreads what lies on the other side of this life, that's your opportunity as a believer in Jesus Christ to witness. Believer, you have the words of eternal life. As a result of God's work in your life, you have come to know the one who brings peace, even in the midst of great trial. As a result of God's work in your life, you have come to know that you can trust him to provide for every one of your needs, even as others have descended into hoarding and survival mode. As a result of getting right with God through Jesus Christ, you can look toward the unknown of this world with great confidence because of the absolute certainty you have of the next. And so, believer, times like these, especially times like these, are our opportunity to witness. And so who in your life can you speak these words of comfort to? And who in your life can you bring the message of hope to in these troubling times? This may be your opportunity to witness to some that would have never been interested before. Jesus closes out this long discourse, which we'll dig into in greater depth at another study. But he closes out this long discourse with these words. He says, now when you see these things begin to take place, straighten up. Raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. 
Christian, your salvation is closer now than any other time in your life in which you have believed. Our salvation is closer now than when any of us first believed. And that for a believer should not be a cause for fear, but rather a cause for great rejoicing. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we are in the midst of this world, and yet at the same time, we're not of it. And Lord, you've called that uh, a great opportunity for the church, for your, the people of God, to communicate hope and peace in troubling times. And so, Father, I pray for any of us that are watching now that are indeed troubled by these things, Lord, the uncertainty of life, the economy, health, people we care for, what's going to happen to them, what's going to happen to us. Lord, I pray that we may be able to face these things in a very, very unique way that stands out within our community and that people will look to us, they will see that there's something different by the way that you respond. There's a hope that you have that I don't and that people would be drawn not just to us but ultimately to us so that we can point them to you and we can introduce people to the hope of Jesus Christ and the hope that is ours beyond the grave. And so, Lord, use us in these unique times. Encourage us to walk with our head up high because our salvation is drawing nearer even than when we first believed. And we'll pray that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to encourage you, if you've tuned in today and you do not yet have a relationship with Christ, some of the things that I am sharing today might be totally foreign to you. It's as if you have no idea what I'm saying here. And I'm talking about this ability to have a peace even in the midst of the troubling times that we have. If that resonates with you, it very well may be you have never begun a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. What the Bible teaches us very, very clearly is that our sin separates us from God. Every human being that has ever lived on this earth and ever will live on this earth has sin in their life. They sin because they're a sinner, and that sin separates them from God. Jesus Christ came into the world to pay the penalty and to deal with the problem of our sin. He forms a bridge, if you will, between us and God, between sinner and and the Holy One. Jesus Christ, both God and man, gave his life on a cross so that you and I could be forgiven of our sin and brought into right relationship with him. And if you're, if you're, if you're sitting here today and you've never done that before, then I want to encourage you in this. Take a moment before getting up and going on with the rest of your day, look unto the Lord, and in the honesty of your heart, cry out to him in prayer. Say, God, I know that I'm a sinner, I know that I am separated from you, and I place my trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to forgive me of my sin. Lord, would you enter into my life? Would you forgive me and declare me to be your child? Now, you do that, and God begins to do a work in your life, and he begins to remove the old and replace it with the new. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed and is passing away. All things are becoming new. And God will begin to change you and take that heart of fear and replace it with a heart of hope. 
If you've done that this morning, why don't you reach out to us? We're going to put an email address up on the screen. You can send us a little note. You can, if you're watching on Facebook, you can put it in the comment section, and we'll begin to dialogue with you. We'll help you in this process. Every one of us has begun a relationship at some point in time, and we needed people in our lives that would help us along the way that would give us good materials to consider and to study and to grow and to learn. And we want to do that for you as well. So don't hesitate. Reach out to us. Send us that note. Do so today, and we'll, you'll get, we'll get you started on your path with Jesus Christ. We're going to close our time together with a, a song of worship. And so be blessed. I'll come back in a few moments to say goodbye.